1: Other thing that I think is fundamental for things to change is assessment. Mm. You cannot start changing the materials without changing assessment first. You have to know what your goals are. You have to agree on what your goals are. And, And I think an honest conversation on assessment and goals is needed before you make any other kind of change. And I say honest because I think a lot of people say we want communicative we want meaningful we want task based right whatever they say they want we want our students to be able to have a conversation but then in my experience when i probe especially in higher ed (laughs) when i probe and i say what if the student is saying this what if the student is making all these errors what if the student is not remembering the words how would you feel oh well no no then they haven't learned
0: Okay, so then
1: it's not right so then let's have an honest conversation about proficiency goals. Because I think that sometimes we want the proficiency goals, but expecting a level of accuracy that is sometimes a little unrealistic for the time that we have with our learners.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. To those of you who are new, each episode of our podcast is devoted to bringing the most recent, most innovative, and most insightful research applications into teacher education, language teaching, and language education. And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our new Teacher Accelerator program which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work-life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone, our program isn't for everyone everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community, we have live sessions, we have self-paced learning, and more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogmy and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition from selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things. Very, very happy to have a special guest in our Teacher Talking Time podcast and today's guest is Florencia Henshaw, who has a PhD in second language acquisition and teacher education from the University of Illinois, where she is now the director of Advanced Spanish. Florencia is an award winning educator who has published and presented nationally and internationally on topics such as technology integration and, of course, research based pedagogical practices. Florencia is also, I don't know how many of you know this, but she has an amazing podcast. She is the host of Unpacking Language Pedagogy, which is also available as a podcast and a YouTube channel. And what does she do in this podcast, in this YouTube channel? Well, she basically summarizes and discusses research articles, activities, terms, and various topics related to language Teaching in her most recent publication, her co-authored book *Common Ground: Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom*, aims to help educators visualize and how to put principles into action. We're very excited for this interview today, and we really hope you also enjoy. All right, uh, Florencia, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yes, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time for this interview. And I thought we would perhaps start from the beginning. Perhaps we could talk about your humble beginnings, because as far as I know, you were you were uh, born and raised in Argentina. Yes. I don't know if you are a River or Boca fan. Um, River.
1: My, River. My dad was. My dad was a River fan. I'm not. I honestly, I'm not that into soccer. But th- th- that was my dad, so let's go with that. Yes.
2: Okay. And. From my understanding, you moved to the US when you were like 19 yes. and you got a major in biology. So I'm <laughs> curious how did you go from biology into teaching and researching second language acquisition?
1: Okay, so let's clarify. I was a biology major in Argentina. I did one year of college um, and I did all kinds of organic chemistry and all of that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I moved to the US, uh, they make you, you know, for the student visa, you have to say what major you're going to be studying. So I put biology. And that was, I guess, the beginning of my community college. I was a biology major, but I never actually finished that major because after. My first semester, uh, you know, I tutored students uh, who um, were learning Spanish, and I discovered that I loved it. And very naively of me, one day, um, someone said, you should do that. And then I responded, wait people want to learn Spanish, like I can actually teach it, I can, I can make a living doing that. And I was like, wow, that is fantastic. Let's do that. Let's change it. That's exactly what I want to do. Um, so that's how I changed it. And for a while, I thought I would be, you know, getting a teaching license, a K-12 teaching license. Um, and once again, someone else said, why don't you go for the master's and PhD? And I said, oh, I'm not cut out for that. I can't, that, that is not me. Um, and I think, you know, when I was doing my undergrad, I realized maybe I can, I had great professors at Cal State San Marcos and one of them was the one who said, um, you should go to the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She even showed me the website and I fell in love with the program. I looked at the courses and I was like, I cannot wait. Um, and I still have my letter of acceptance where, you know, you're supposed to just check I accept or I don't accept back then it was all letters, maybe now as everything is electronic but by right. then it was actual letters you get in the mail. <laughs> and instead of just a check mark I wrote yes in capital letters <laughs> exclamation point. Uh, so it, it, that was it I said that's exactly what I want to do I want to do a master's and PhD in second language acquisition. Yeah.
2: Wow. I want to backtrack here a little bit because I mean, one of the things that we hear people talking a lot about is, is fantasizing about this idea that we are born a teacher and clearly you were not born one, but you eventually found that passion. So I wanted to circle back to that very specific moment. If it could zoom in into that specific moment, when you said, wow, I can actually do this. What was exactly, um, what, what exactly about you were doing at that time when you were teaching Spanish in the US, what exactly made you want to pursue this as a career?
1: That is an interesting question. I think I always liked teaching something. Mm. Um, So I don't know. I can't tell you, of course, there's no way for me to tell you for sure whether I was born a teacher or not. That is really hard for me to say. I think I always liked teachers. I, I liked the act of teaching somebody something. I like that feeling of somebody learning from you, which mm-hmm. is incredibly rewarding. Um, Now, in terms of languages, I even remember when I was in high school, I would help my friends with French or English, oh. even though I wasn't all that great at it. I, I don't think so. I still like the idea of you're struggling with this concept. I kind of get it. Let me help you get what I get. Mm -hmm. So I always enjoy this idea of simplifying, giving a different take on it, see if I can help you grasp something. I've always enjoyed that challenge. Um, And I think this is what I still do (laughs) and what I enjoy the most, right? This very Complicated thing, and it is complicated. Let me see if I can help you get a good grasp on at least one part of it. Right, that's essentially (laughs) what I do. (laughs) I think Uh, I just gave you a complicated answer. No,
2: that's good.
3: (laughs) That's good. good. And and I know that you've talked a little bit about this before. I've heard you um, talk about um, the the positive. It's important that that learners have a positive relationship with language. And I just wondered, like, how how, you know, when you were helping your friends out when you were at at university, when you were tutoring, and then throughout your courses, you were going through your graduate studies. um, What were there any kind of approaches that really stuck with you? Anything that you really kind of um, hold like true in terms of this is what's really key for, for, for making people kind of succeed with the language and have that better, more positive relationship with the language?
1: Right. I think I would say yes, but of course this was a journey that took a long time for me to reflect on and realize. I'll give you a silly example. Um, this is how much of a
3: English <laughs> teacher I was born we to We like meet. silly, yeah, yeah. When I
1: was in, I think high school, high school, yeah. High school um, and I started um, listening to music in English. One of my friends, I remember, she wanted to learn English, and she knew like zero, right? And I thought, since I like this music, let's use this music. And I would even like create close activities with this song. Do you know how hard it is to understand a song when you know zero of that language? And my friend didn't necessarily like that music anyway. Right. So I didn't, of course, I knew nothing of language acquisition or teaching. I was just doing this thinking I'm going to help my friend. And I think with time, I realized that you have to work with the individual learner. Mm -hmm. There are some fundamentals that I think apply to the vast majority of learners and that we need to keep in mind, of course. But there's such an individual side of language learning that we cannot ignore. And that is the challenge that I still struggle with teaching classes of 19, 20 students, because mm-hmm. I'm supposed to evaluate everybody the same way. I'm supposed to move at the same pace. It is a challenge. It is it's still a challenge for me. I have not found a great solution. The best thing I could think of is what happens in our asynchronous online classes where the students can work at their own pace. But of course, that has their own downsizes that, that, you know, it it is not ideal either. Um, And and the issue of evaluation and assessment is still there. I'm still expected to evaluate everybody at the same time. Everybody takes the test or, or does whatever assignment by a certain deadline. And everybody's evaluated by the same criteria, right? I'm still struggling with that and I'm not giving up on finding a good solution to it or at least a good compromise where I could still tailor it a little bit more to what the learner finds interesting or how the the specific learner wants to show me that they're making progress in the target Mm -hmm. language. But it's a challenge. I haven't figured it all out yet.
2: It's very interesting because I feel now that you actually, you were born a teacher then. You just didn't know that you were a teacher back then. So I'm going, yes. to, I'm going to correct myself here. And it's interesting what you've mentioned here, Florencia, with this idea of language being a very individual endeavor, even though a lot of the times when we are learning languages, we are learning in the classroom, which I don't know if you're going to agree with me. It's a very artificial environment 100%. For, a, for a person to be learning a language. And I'm curious... About the, the factors, because I know you have done presentations on this, you have written extensively about this, on factors that may actually impact the target language use. And you mentioned things like, um, I think you've mentioned proficiency level, the instructional context, even interaction type. I think you've written about teachers and students and students and students. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Well, I would say I'm not an expert at individual factors, right? And I think that even when you read some of the literature on that and um, Ellis and Shintani have a great chapter on that in their book um, it's a little bit fuzzy, and that's because it's so hard to isolate one factor from the other, right. and it's also really hard to objectively measure some of these mm-hmm. factors, right and so it, it's hard to pinpoint one specific individual difference. And in in this factor is what's making all the difference. I, I think that's almost almost impossible to do. And the beauty of it is that, to, at least to me, I don't even want to do that, because I think, I, I remind myself, I'm teaching humans, I'm teaching right. people who are incredibly complex, who are not the same from one day to the next, and not even from one hour to the next. And that they're made up of all of these wonderful, wonderfully complicated factors. And we have to embrace that and love that we cannot be controlling everything all the time. So um, what I would probably say is that I think you need to, I just, I want to keep in mind The subjectivity of it, the the emotion. This is why I go back to this good relationship with language. And sometimes you cannot explain it with one factor like aptitude or this, you know, intelligent test and all these things they do. Even motivation questionnaires. Yeah, I guess that's Mm -hmm. how you sort of think you feel when you're filling out the questionnaire, but that might be very different the next week, right? So, you know, I think that it's important to keep in mind how our relationship with language evolves, our relationship with wanting to learn the language evolves too. And as much as possible, to try to see what sparks that interest in the learners, where they feel Mm -hmm. comfortable, and where they feel like they have a good relationship with learning that language. I know that's a very vague answer, but no, no, that's no. the best way that I can put it. I think that if we get so concerned about measuring very specific factors, we're losing the forest for the trees, right? Yeah. We need to remember that it's just it's it's, it's complex and it's beautiful to teach people, and 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 we cannot forget that. And and everybody's going to have different experiences. Everybody's going to have different perceptions. Um, the way we look at the world, we look at the language. Is going to affect our relationship with it. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep in mind all of these things. We cannot control all of these things. And as much as possible, just keep them in the back of your mind and see when you assign something, when you do an activity, just understanding how everybody's gonna have a different perception of it. Everybody's Mm -hmm. gonna have a different experience with it. I'll give you another example. Mm -hmm. I happen to love information gap tasks. And yes, if you tell me, like, spot the differences task. I'm like, let's do it. This is fun. And I have friends who are like, oh my God, like I cannot do that. That is incredibly boring and and ridiculous. Who does that anyway? And I respect that. And Mm -hmm. I think my students probably feel the same way. Same with go around the room and find somebody who does this or that. Right. And a lot of teachers, including myself, think this is great. They're getting up, they're moving, they're talking. Look how great. I ask my students, the vast majority say, we hate those activities. So we need to keep in mind that the way that we perceive things is going to be different than the way that the students are perceiving things. And that's part of empathy as well, right? We need to be able to understand the other person's experience. And sometimes it's going to be very similar to yours and you can relate and that's empathy for sure. But it could also be about understanding how very differently they're seeing the exact same situation, the exact same experience.
3: And I think you've talked about that before. You you mentioned it just now, this idea of giving up control, right? Um, yes. So what does that mean then for like teachers and learners if if one if a teacher gives up control? What does that look like?
1: That's a good <laughs> question. Um well yeah,
3: yeah.
1: it looks like it, it very differently and it depends a lot on the context too. I think it does look like a lot in terms of self-paced individualized instruction. Um I think it, it does involve this um, acknowledging that what the learner may want and need is different than what you needed when you were a learner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we need to understand, which is hard, and it's a, it's a journey of reflection, at one point, we're trying to control their learning, their production, right? and We we create these rubrics that are super detailed, and we expect something so specific versus the fact that we need to let them take ownership for their own learning, their own production, and that everybody's journey is going to look a little bit different, right? Everybody's development of the language is going to be look a little bit different. So... I think it does involve a lot of flexibility, and I do realize that in some contexts it is very difficult. And in mm. my context, again, I, I go with the same. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm perfect, and that I have it all figured out. I'm. I'm still required to you know, evaluate students using the same criteria, I'm still required that everybody turns this in by certain dates, and I Mm. wish that I had much more flexibility, but I don't. Same with if I teach a class and there's 20 students sitting in one classroom, I have no flexibility of saying, let's meet individually. I wish I could, but I can't, right? Right. So a, a lot of things is a little bit of a compromise. It's not going to be ideal. I just try to continue thinking about ways in which I could incorporate a little more flexibility. Mm-hmm. So one way that I've done that and that I like a lot, and that's because I am OPI certified probably, is with interviews, individual interviews. It's, mm-hmm. it's amazing how different it is to interact one-on-one with the students um, or even using these platforms where the students can interact with speakers of the target language. And so the student is having this individual experience in the target language. To me, that that, that is very, very valuable for language development. And it acknowledges that it's a very individual process. And it lets go of control because then we're not at least... I'm not evaluating this. Do you remember the word for this thing? <laughs> do you remember the conjugation <laughs> for this verb? Box. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is not my objective. So I let go of that. Um, and yeah, I know that sometimes it's hard because I used to do that too, right? The vocab list and then quizzing them to see if they remember certain words. And at the end of the day, to me, it's like if they don't remember that word, but they can sort of express the same in a different way, to me, it's like, Absolutely, good job. Love it, right? I'm not gonna take points off because you couldn't remember this one word,
2: right? I mean, there's so much to unpack that I was taking notes oh, so here, okay. and I, and I I don't even know where to start. Well,
1: you know, I like unpacking.
2: Oh, that's that's. <laughs> We're gonna talk about the unpacking academic articles in a second, but you said something that we have been kind of talking about for a very long time as well. Mike and I, we, we, we truly believe that you can't really control language. And you were talking about this idea of controlling. It's what we call the straight, straight jacket approach to language yes. learning, where you basically tell your students, you're, we're going to practice this rule. We're, we're, I'm going to present this rule. We're going to practice this rule. And then you're going to produce this rule where Thank eventually you have no room. And you were saying this, you have to create allow for creativity, right? Um, so my question to you is, if we, know, if we know that language is not textbook rules and charts, yet instructors continue to think that what we see in textbooks is what winds up in people's heads, what can we do to change that?
1: Oh, good question. Um, I think it's... Uh, i think that's something that we've been trying to do for a long time now right i think and this is why i talk with my method students because sometimes we read articles where it almost sounds like the author is frustrated and my students <laughs> are like why is the author so frustrated I said, it's because <laughs> they probably publish this many 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 times and they see very little actual change happening right right especially when we look at textbooks that seems to be almost stagnant, right? Like there's very little change. There's change in the words that they use. There's a little bit of change here, a little bit change there, but the book is still organized very much like what you just said. We need to cover certain structures and here's this one structure. We learned it. You now know it. Let's move on to something else. And even courses are in a way organized that way, right? Where we're covering things and then we move on, as in, like, okay, we have mastered this, we're next to the, we're ready for the next level. Right. And language development just doesn't work that way. So I don't know exactly what we can do other than um, some efforts, which I think are already happening. I don't want to discount that. Okay. I think that creating materials where the teachers see that they can use this in class definitely is one way of helping things. To change. The other thing that I think is fundamental for things to change is assessment.
0: Mm. You cannot
1: start changing the materials without changing assessment first. You have to know what your goals are, you have to agree on what your goals are. Um, and, And I think an honest conversation on assessment and goals is needed before you make any other kind of change. And I say honest because I think a lot of people say, we want communicative, we want meaningful, we want task-based, right? Whatever they say they want, we want our students to be able to have a conversation. But then in my experience, when I probe, especially in higher ed, (laughs) when I probe and I say, what if the student is saying this? What if the student is making all these errors? What if the student is not remembering the words? How would you feel? Oh, well, no, no, then they haven't learned. Okay so then it's not right so then let's have an honest conversation about proficiency goals because i think that sometimes we want the proficiency goals but expecting a level of accuracy that is right. sometimes a little unrealistic for the time that we have with our learners mm-hmm. so it, it, this is where you know if if we're still going to be interested in do they know these words and can they conjugate verbs accurately then yeah things may not need to change. (laughs) But if we are, if our goals are truly proficiency-based with a good understanding of realistic proficiency, then a lot of things do need to be changed. Because a lot of this mechanical practice that is happening um, in in a lot of classrooms, to me, is taking time away from things that could be more helpful for the students to develop proficiency in the target language. I understand we want them to get there. Of course, I'm not saying, you know, they should be novice high forever and ever, of course not. But we need to understand how slowly this accuracy develops. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the actual proficiency guidelines may not be perfect, but at least I appreciate that even for the description for intermediate still recognizes that students are making these errors right that they're producing non-target like forms and i think that we i also think we have a little bit of an impatience problem right we mm-hmm. we want to we want to too much too fast and and we don't get them and this is what leads to people uh, seeking shortcuts and then they think that well but if i do if i tell them the rule and then we practice it a lot i'm sure it's a shortcut right for acquisition <laughs> right. not quite right so i think that it, it, you know you if you want I understand that you want to see results and you need to show results sometimes to your admin and things and that's part of the other issue with institutionalized education but then we have to rethink of we have to rethink what we consider progress and results mm-hmm. you know and I said sometimes we think that progress is always in terms of more accuracy, Yes, but that may not be the case. We have to rethink progress. Progress in language development might be being able to say a little more, mm-hmm. might be fluency, meaning how much you can say within a period of time, even if accuracy has not improved. That's right. Fluency is still improvement. Like it's a level
2: important. of comfortable intelligibility, I would say.
1: Being confident and comfortable, absolutely. Yeah. Um, being perhaps being able to understand a question without asking for clarification is also progress. Yes. Um, being, no, say, oh, sorry, I said it in Spanish.
2: We can, we can, we can <laughs> do That's a little okay. bit of translanguaging here. <laughs> yeah.
1: my, my bilingual brain had a shortcut. That's there. okay. <laughs> my, <laughs> short circuit. Um, and, you know, I think that sometimes talking about another topic is progress. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's more about rethinking our goals and then what results we're looking for. But in language teaching, I see so much of results and progress being measured in terms of accuracy. Yeah. Why do we put so much emphasis on this accuracy, especially grammatical accuracy? Oh. But there, There's just so much. And the, I mean, the, sorry, I'm talking too much, but no, I want to say no. one more thing. And I see it. And that's because one thing you notice. <laughs> And, and I, in the actual proficiency guidelines, when it comes to comprehensibility, and I know that it's controversial, but let, you know, might need to go there right now, please, um, comprehensibility, of course, is in the eyes and ears of the beholder, right? So it depends on your, your audience, what's going right. to be comprehensible to you might not be comprehensible to somebody else. But okay. Um, what I do find interesting <laughs> is that the lower levels Comprehensibility says that it's a sympathetic interlocutor used to non-native speakers, right? That's how they describe it. Okay. And usually the way they explain it is a language teacher. But then the upper levels are about a not necessarily sympathetic interlocutor who's not used to non-native speakers. But what I find super interesting is that out in the real world, language teachers are much more likely to notice. All of the things that were not (laughs) target-like, they're sometimes more likely to ask for clarification or to give a recast Mm -hmm. than Mm non-language teachers who may not have experience with non-language But they're still like, oh, I understood you. Like, let's keep going. There's no need to be recasting. There's no need to ask for clarification. And sometimes they don't even notice that something was non-target-like. So I find it really fascinating and I'm guilty of the same thing that as language teachers, we listen to somebody with non-target-like forms and we pick them all up. That, wasn't really... non- that was non-target-like, that was non-target-like, that was non-target-like. Where does that come from? I don't know. I don't know if it's from our training. I don't know if it's something you're born with. I uh, I, really I don't think know. it's the
2: training. I think it's the okay. training because I feel like a lot of our training, Florencia, It's really accuracy at the expense of fluency. It's really, you know, teaching rules, teaching charts. And I remember watching a talk, and I think you promoted this talk a while ago with Van Patten, where he was basically Mm -hmm. talking about what we call these rules and charts in textbooks. They are an illusion because they only conform to that very specific sentence in that very specific context, completely ignoring the entire discourse. And Mike talks a lot about this as well with being able to belong to a very specific discourse community and mm-hmm. maybe if i don't belong to that discourse community i may not understand you but yeah right
1: well i the the, the rules those those rules are all the shortcuts that people want right, to speed right. up acquisition and it doesn't work that way um and and yeah also the yeah <laughs> I think that's about all I'm going to say. But yeah, the, the the issue of the lack the lack of context. The only mm-hmm. thing I'll say, though, and, and I've been guilty of this as an SLA researcher. You've got to publish. I understand. Not, yeah. you know, no shame No, no shade to any SLA researchers out there. But that's a little bit of the issue that I see in a lot of studies. I'm unpack, unpacking studies. And almost always, I want to know, but did this treatment affect anything else because sometimes you're only showing me that it had effects or x was more beneficial than y right but i'm not seeing the complete picture you're only telling me whether they were able to do better on a very specific test and you're only (laughs) telling me if they did better in terms of accuracy with one specific grammatical structure but i have no idea if accuracy went downhill with everything else and now the students were only focused on this they don't tell you that because the studies are only looking at one particular form.
3: Or what it means from the perspective of the student, right? Like, what does it all mean from the student and their own kind of you know, investment in the language and, and their their decision to keep learning or to improve on certain things as well, right? It doesn't when, appreciate the agency that's involved
1: as well. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and the other thing which has been criticized, but not all studies uh, still report on that, the the studies that look at things like um, instructional treatment and see Mm -hmm. if something makes a difference with one particular structure, the the issue of overgeneralization. Because if you see that there was an improvement, (laughs) but you're not looking at what happened with the the structure items or the items where they were not supposed to use that structure, right? If you're only quantifying the ones where you wanted them to use that structure and you see improvement, that's great. But what about, were they just overgeneralizing and using <laughs> it too much, and you get sort of a false inflation of right. improvement in accuracy? <laughs> and it has been in some studies they do point it out. Wong has a study where she pointed out Savignon. The studies from Communicative Language Teaching in the early eighties pointed it out. Um, spelling instruction. I impacted a study published uh, last year. On spelling instruction with heritage speakers. And yeah, look at this improvement. But you know what happened? They started adding accents to everything. So eventually some accents were more correct. You're right. They right. they started using accents, but everything else got accents too. So I think that we need to be careful in terms of this over-generalization, right. over-application yeah, yeah, of a rule when we're drilling these rules and we're drilling the rules and we're drilling the rules. Then they're like, okay, I, I know what the researcher wants me to do. I need to be very careful with this because they're looking at the subjunctive or the direct object or whatever it is right and i think that happens a little bit in our in our classes too now for anybody out there who's thinking well but you don't know if that is maybe the first stage where they start to over apply or generalize and then eventually right things work out that's true and that's the other issue with sla research right we usually have maybe four week studies if that and yeah. we don't really know what happens a year or two down the line
2: yeah wow Oof! I don't even know where I, I feel like it's the accuracy. We had no, too, no, much, I too much. That was too much.
3: That was too much. Teaching passive voice, and then as soon as for some arbitrary yes. reason, it's now time to teach passive voice, and then after you teach it, that's all they want to use, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Because because they have it now, right? And it just goes so back in, to in, what in, you were in, saying, in, right? Yeah, yeah. In
1: Spanish, yeah. with say, and estar, right? And then we we teach them estar, and here we go, everything is a estar now. Yeah. And uh, again, I, I the studies just don't. Because it's hard to give you a complete, complete picture. I get it, um, and this is why I say that studies, research studies, give us clues. What we do with those clues mm-hmm. is another story. Um, I don't want to just dismiss them entirely because sometimes there's something there. There's a little bit of a pattern, even if the researcher is not telling you something for you to think about. Right. But we, of course, every study has limitations, and I think there's only so much a study can tell us. So I think it's difficult to conclude something from only one or two studies, as you know.
0: Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, this is Andrew from Learn Your English. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teacher Talking Time. We work hard to produce a show that's theoretical, practical, and hopefully interesting. But, you know, not everything fits into a podcast format. And we've been working hard behind the scenes on something that we're excited about. And we hope you are too. And we're happy to share it with you right now. But first, let me ask you a few questions. Number one, are you a teacher with your own business? Number two, are you looking to grow that business? And number three, are you interested in doing that quickly and overcoming common pitfalls? If so, we have a new free 120-hour training that might be for you. You know, we've worked with hundreds of teachers over the years and have seen them stumble on common obstacles when it comes to business. These obstacles cause delays and stagnate growth to what would otherwise be a successful operation. And now we're happy to say that we've developed an email course to help you overcome these challenges so you can see growth in your business right away. This is a step-by-step email training to help you overcome the five obstacles that we've seen prevent most teachers from building their business successfully, whether you teach one-to-one or groups or don't have your own business yet. In this course, we look at things like business mindset, dogma ELT, and materials light teaching attracting the right kind of client, crafting your offer, and an essential business model every teacher should use. With this, we've helped hundreds of teachers to overcome these, and now you can do it as well. To begin, just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles. Once enrolled, you'll get an email from us every day for five days with strategies, tasks, and actionables to use in your business immediately. Plus, at the end, there's a little treat from the three of us. So, once again, head over to learnyourenglish.net slash obstacles and get started with this free 120 hour course and see growth in your business in just five days. The link to that is also in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show.
1: Hello, everyone. Here's Sandra from Brazil. I'm here to say that the Learn Your English membership for teachers is an amazing opportunity
0: to get together with other teachers from all over the world, read about different topics, and discuss. It's been an amazing journey.
1: There are webinars. There is a lot of material which is available for us to learn about various topics. I can't wait to learn even more. Hey everyone, my name is Maurice and I'm from Ivory Coast. You're listening to the Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English Podcast. Coucou tout le monde, je m'appelle Maurice et je viens de Côte d'Ivoire. Vous écoutez the Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English Podcast.
0: Amusez-vous bien?
2: And since we're talking about SLA and research, I actually conducted a very informal survey this morning i um, wow. asking teachers because a lot of uh, the audience, our audience is primarily language teachers in the classroom. And I asked them, do you let research inform your teaching practice? And it's amazing how a lot of people have said that they don't like reading research.
1: Yeah, I, no, that's a, not amazing to me. That's right. <laughs> and then we have a few people who
2: said a little. And then, of course, we have those who say yes. So now that we're jumping into SLA, um, I would lo- we're going to talk about your book as well. Um, but before we do that, I, I think the question is, I would like to hear you speak more about how much should, or, or to what extent do you think teachers should eventually engage with research? Because we truly believe that our teaching should be principled. I don't think research should dictate what we do in the classroom, but it should at least inform. So what's what's your take on that, Valencia?
1: Yes, now hmm, I so I wrote about I wrote about because this this phrase research informed pedagogy tends to be misunderstood a little hmm. bit. How I so mean you you can say that you are research informed and you're only going by the studies that you like.
0: Right. right? Very if biased. You cherry, yeah. If
1: you cherry pick studies, you're going to find studies that tell you that explicit instruction and drilling did wonders for their students. And right. so that's what you want to do. Then you have your research informed, technically. Right. right So this is why i the, the phrase research informed is good if we're all understanding the same thing by it. Right. But it could be misunderstood. Um, i like your idea of principle i like that a lot better um mm-hmm. to me is more about being informed in terms of the the big ideas the big right. concepts there and especially this is not going to be surprising but the common ground right what mm-hmm. are the things that we can agree on or that most of us can agree on i think it's important to keep those things in mind those principles in mind now you i think it's still good for you to know what research may say about specific practices. For example, the subtitles versus captions Mm -hmm. or peer review. I think research can tell us a lot of interesting, insightful things that we can keep in mind. But once again, they're clues Mm -hmm. for you to adapt and apply to your own context. And 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 I say context, and context is huge, right? And every teacher knows their own context. And we go back to this very individualized learning process that research will never be able to capture. That doesn't make research useless. That doesn't mean that research has nothing to offer to you because the context of a particular study is so different from yours. No, I I read studies that were conducted with children. I teach college students. I still want to know what's going on there. What, What can this study tell me? Um some things I find fascinating, like the studies on vocabulary, and using pictures versus translation. Mm. And we've seen, you know, we've seen the vocab list where it's just words and translation. And we've also seen the textbooks where it's just pictures that are labeled. Right. Uh, and I always wondered does it make any difference? Should I be, why should I do one or the other? But then when you read the the research studies, one thing I found fascinating is that there's a little bit of a pattern between adults and children, whereas Mm. children tend to do better when it's pictures and adults tend to do better when it's the translation. Mm. Is there something there? I don't know, but at least it it helps you think because the next time I'm going to insist so much on a picture labeled, (laughs) maybe I need to consider, I'm not doing anything wrong, but just giving my students the translation my students are adult college students right right so it's just something for you to think about to try it out in your own context and this is nothing new patsy live has been saying this for for a long time not just live many many people have been saying this for a long time they are just guidelines suggestions clues for you to try in your own context to keep in mm-hmm. mind and adapt to your own context. It, it, there's, there's no way a research study can tell you exactly how your learners are going to behave or do or perform, or it, it that is impossible. You're asking research for something that it will never be able to give you. So I completely understand that it, it's very time consuming because it's not a simple. What do we know about this? Here's the answer. Okay, I'm done. It just doesn't work that way. You would you would need to We're looking
2: for match. shortcuts again. We we're again, looking for exact yes, answers. And I yes.
1: understand, and I understand. So I I think the I don't know if we're ready to be talking about unpacking, but I think that was a little bit of my intention with unpacking language pedagogy, and it's because I saw the great efforts of OASIS where they have these research summaries. Great initiative. I think it's a step in the right direction but I'm still concerned that if we go by relatively objective summaries yeah. we're not getting a very complete picture and again mm-hmm. you might read these summaries of studies that show that <laughs> doing drills led to you know this particular treatment group to do better right. and then you conclude oh See, they did better with these drills. So that must be that drills are good.
3: <laughs> the or, next summary says drills are bad. And
1: the next <laughs> yeah, one says yeah. that drills are bad. If you get to the next summary, you might not yeah, see yeah, exactly, it. Right? Yeah. Or you might see a summary of a study saying that using pictures was better than translations. Right. And then you're like, oh, see, I got to do pictures. No more translations, no more translations. And then that's not right. the complete. So I think that what was needed. And it could be that OASIS is heading in that direction. I'm not sure. I think it's great to do objective uh, summaries, which is merely for the purposes of time and accessibility, Mm -hmm. since a lot of studies are behind paywalls. And that's another thing that we can discuss at length. Right. But what I wanted to offer that was different was my own take on it to sort of not not just in terms of what do you really need to know because sometimes studies give you way too much information that you really don't need uh but also in terms of interpreting all this and then even offering some questions that were not answered and that sometimes the summary doesn't give you because the summary only gives you what the author's wanted right. to point out in terms of limitations, but maybe somebody else reads it and see something completely different. Right. And that's the other thing about research that uh, you know teachers should know. Two researchers can look at the same set of data and they see different conclusions. It, mm-hmm. it just, it happens, right? We, we in the research studies, show our own interpretation of the data um, right. i think it's it's great when when publications are transparent and they offer you know all of their data all of their uh, treatment materials everything out there for you to then decide what you want to do with these results um, but to give you another example, and this is a classic example, if you're familiar with processing instruction by Bill mm-hmm. Van Patten yeah. and structured input, right? It has a very specific way.
2: Before of- you unpack that, just oh. a very let's unpack that for the audience first, because they might oh, yeah. not be familiar with with um, in pro- input processing.
1: Right. So uh, processing instruction, and in one part of it is called structured input. So processing instruction is this way of approaching. Um, Language teaching in a way that keeps in mind how we process language, how we process input especially. But, um, for example, we, we know that students who are native English speakers, when they read a sentence in Spanish, they're going to assign the role of subject to the first noun that they see in the sentence. In in Spanish, word order can be variable. So that's not always the case that the subject goes first. So that's just one example of one thing that processing instruction keeps in mind. And so input is in a way manipulated to maximize, not guarantee, but to maximize the odds that the learners will be processing it correctly. And by processing, I mean making the right form meaning connection. So not just noticing, which would be, Enhanced uh, input, for example, underlining bold. Right. so That's just noticing, but processing takes it that one step further where you're actually making the form meaning connection. Um, so The way that processing instruction is described and especially structured input is described is very specific. It has a set of principles Mm -hmm. where some things are structured input, but some things are not structured input. And the the classic issue is that with a lot of studies that say they are structured input, but then when I look at the materials, I go, this is actually not structured input by the definition of structured input, by the strict definition of structured input. And so what do you do with those results, right? I would not agree with the rest of the paper because the rest of the paper is making right. claims about structured input where I'm like, but it wasn't structured input. So that's just to give you an example of how sometimes somebody, even a reviewer, might see it and think, yeah, this sounds about right. You know, not everybody's an expert on structured input, right? right. So, you know, you get uh, you get papers where then other people then disagree and say, you know, they, they made these claims about processing and structure and structure input, but it wasn't actually that. Mm-hmm. So all we can say is that you can't claim anything about structured input. Um, but that's, that's just to give you an example. Another example that I love to give is a study on the use of online translators, which, oh, okay. as you know, among language teachers is a very controversial topic. Right. If you want to get a good discussion going, just mention you know Translate. please, Let's <laughs> talk yeah. about
2: that. Let's unpack that one.
1: Oh, I love talking about Google Translate. So the issue was, and, and I, I completely respect the researcher. He's a former grad of my own university. Mm-hmm. He, um, he did a study, which I think we need more studies like this, mm-hmm. um, where one group was allowed to use, I'm going to simplify a lot. I'm going to simplify my own simplification. One group was allowed to use Google Translate. They got some training on it as well. And other groups were not. And so what they did was they asked learners to first write something without using anything. So just to see the baseline, if you will. Mm -hmm. Then they wrote something using Google Translate. Control group didn't use anything at all. And then uh, post-test. Write something again on your own just to see if the group that had used Google Translate had made any sort of gains. Like, does it help with language development? (laughs) And the most fascinating part was they did worse in the post-test. And one one sentence is all he wrote in the discussion. I would have written an entire paragraph. One sentence he wrote, and it's right there, and I quote it. (laughs) <laughs> every time because I'm like this is exactly what I wanted to see what
2: was the sentence do you remember I'm curious now
1: <laughs> the sentence This it, it is in my video but uh, I'm going to paraphrase it was that students had become so dependent on the tool they had mastered I don't remember that the tool they had mastered uh-huh. that when the tool was taken away all that went away right so mm what to me that's what the what the study was telling me but most of the discussion is actually about how we should train students to use google translate hmm. and you might think how could that be and that's because the way that he saw the data and i respect that is that it's true that with training the students did a fantastic job writing mm-hmm. a composition using google translate but what i say was <laughs> I am already convinced that the students do better using Google Translate. I, I don't need any data convincing me of that. What I'm interested in seeing is when Google Translate goes away, Right. did it help them in terms of language development? And it didn't. And it actually, they did worse than the other ones. And so that makes me question um, if it's perhaps almost like steroids, mm. you know what I mean, where they do right. so much better, that performance is almost unfairly enhanced. there's not any actual learning going on to me it's more about bypassing learning
2: there's no struggle to communicate which i think it's part of this language learning process right like this this willingness to communicate as opposed to just relying on a tool to do the work for you right Right. so you're not really building your you're not building the machine in there right which again since we've been talking about second language acquisition and you were talking we're going to actually sorry to um say this but we're going to link your YouTube series, which I think is phenomenal. I've watched the first six. I don't have time to watch all of them. But it's I, okay.
1: It's okay. But I,
2: I've watched six of them because I really like them. Um, and to those of you who are listening to this podcast or, or watching this, it's called Unpacking Language Pedagogy. And Florence does an amazing job of actually really deconstructing an entire academic paper and bringing it out, her own voice to this um, own paper, which brings us to the book. And I feel like now I understand why the book is called Common Ground. Those of you listening, (laughs) Common Ground, second language theory goes to the classroom. I've read the first two chapters. And I have to say, uh, I I have to say better than most SLA books I have read. It didn't put me to sleep. It didn't put me to sleep. (laughs) Thank you. Very accessible in terms of language. So I think what I want us to talk to, uh, what I want you to tell us more is talk to us more about the genesis of the book. Did the unpacking the language pedagogy came before the, like, where where did this idea come from?
1: Wow. I love this. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm so excited. It's like talking about your kid, right? Mm. Uh, Okay. So (laughs) I think I only like talking about dogs more than talking about my book, but yeah. So (laughs) the idea came from my own experiences, primarily teaching the so-called methods course. Right. And also my own experiences taking such courses. And what I found almost over and over and over again, whether it was the students who were getting their K-12 teaching license or whether the students that are graduate students and are, you know, teaching assistants in our department, teaching college, it doesn't matter. I feel like those foundation classes, the ones that they, they take, some of them with little prior knowledge, if you give them too much of too many conflicting results It it sort of gets lost. They don't know what the best course of action is after that. And potentially it can backfire into them walking away thinking, see, nobody agrees on anything. So I'm just going to do whatever I want.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, especially if they don't have any kind of practicum experience already where they felt, right, they felt it for themselves in the classroom, um, what might have worked and what hasn't worked, right? Right.
1: Right. So I feel that sometimes you have to be guilty, perhaps, of oversimplifying, of leaving some things out for now. I'm not saying it's the only thing and everything a teacher needs to know, mm-hmm. but at least can we start here, right? right. It's, it's the starting point just to have a solid foundation that we understand even what is And it's not input when we talk about input. Yes. Um, What contributes and doesn't contribute to language development in in the sense of proficiency development, even to understand proficiency levels, um, to understand why some mechanical drills may not do anything and it may not be the best use of class time, just to understand this. Because otherwise, if you give them every possible point of view on explicit and implicit knowledge many of them are going to walk away confused and i don't blame them i mean i took i mean i have a phd in and i took so many classes and sometimes i would walk away confused and still not understanding things if you read the papers on noticing and awareness you end up with a headache and so right (laughs) You know, I think that at some point it's just it's too much. If you're going in the field and you're going to get a PhD in SLA, of course, you need to read all of this and deconstruct it and discuss it and go for it. So-called methods courses where we we want them is to be able to apply principles in the classroom. No, way too much. You don't need that yet. If you're interested and you keep going with it, but we have to have some of the fundamentals in place. And I felt like a lot of the books lack that. I respect that people want to include different viewpoints. I just don't think it's very helpful when it comes to teachers, future teachers, current teachers feeling confident in why they're making the decisions Mm -hmm. they're making in the materials that they use or what they do in class. And so I wanted to start there now. Can you expand on it? Of course, there's a lot we didn't include, and it was on purpose, right? right? And sometimes we even say it, like some of these discussions go beyond the scope of this book, because it's the truth. You cannot cover everything. Or you're, you're, To me, you're going to end up overwhelmed. I think this is also related to how easy it is for some SLA scholars or people who write method, methodology books to forget what it's like to be a novice teacher, to forget right. what it's like a first-year grad student. Just like we when we become, you know, advanced speakers of another language, we forget what it's like to be yeah. a novice level student of that language. And so I feel like sometimes the books are written with a different audience in mind. And so we wanted to, to keep in mind our audience as much as possible. Somebody who may not know anything at all about second language acquisition, could they find this book accessible and un- like walking away understanding right, with a yeah. firmer grasp on the fundamentals, that's all. Then after that, and yeah, let's engage in all of the discussions and the things that we still don't know about language acquisition. Mm-hmm. But can we at least start with the fundamentals, have a good base?
2: and what are some of those fundamentals because i think chapter 1 which i've only read the first two and i have my i want to buy the paper
0: version yeah. because
2: i'm still waiting but i was reading the kindle one but what are some of those fundamentals and i think from chapter 1 for those of you who are listening i highly recommend that you actually start reading chapter 1 because you actually give the fundamentals which is basically understanding input mm-hmm. output yes. and and what happens in the middle there so perhaps you could briefly talk a little bit about that? Because we have a question from uh, one of our, uh, a member of our community who actually asked me a question. Like, can you ask Florencia this question? So I'm going to follow up after this.
1: (laughs) Well, so for us, some of the fundamentals are, so first of all, going back, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but going back to goals, right? And we, we are very clear about this in the book. This book is about Developing communicative ability in the target language, developing proficiency. We're not here to tell you about fun ways of conjugating verbs. We're not here right. to tell you how do I get my students to get an A on the next quiz. It is not about that. So that that is our goal. Van Patten actually wrote it in one of the um, epilogues, and he said, "Like my goal is not to make the students linguists, right? If that is your goal, I respect it." You just need a different book. This is just not the right, right book. And right. this is why yeah. I go back to have an honest conversation of goals, because if you're still going to tell me, no, it's unacceptable for a student not to know the right conjugation of this verb. OK, you need a different approach. You just don't. Yeah. Th- this is this is not this is not it. Um, so the first thing is to be clear and realistic about goals. Um And yes, to understand the role of input, what counts as input and what doesn't count as input. It's fundamental that exposure is not enough because sometimes I'm still seeing, right? They just need a lot of exposure.
2: So crashing was wrong.
1: No, no, no. Wait, 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 wait. I'm not not going to get into that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I disagree with crashing on one thing, but we're going to get there. Um, (laughs) the, The exposure, because I think exposure in its strict definition would be just turning on the the TV or playing music in the target language and that you're just going to get it and that doesn't work. So Krashen was actually the first one to say it has to be comprehensible, right? It's just, it cannot be exposure alone. So I'm careful with this exposure alone, especially in the classroom where I see that teachers are more concerned about staying in the target language than about students engaging meaningfully with the language right. right they're like but i'm using spanish all the time well yeah but if they're not understanding it's not doing a lot for them if they're not having right. to do anything with the spanish that you're saying there is just it's like not doing a meaningful
3: lot. ways especially right yeah
1: yes yeah. yes um mm. it, it, the other thing that the, the other point that we keep going back to and i know is not necessarily a fundamental of SLA, but to me in the classroom is very important, is to have purpose. Because mm. this practice for the sake of practice, in the reality of the classroom, where many of our learners may not want to even be there, right. it just doesn't go very far. Right? They're just going to get through the practice, just to accomplish the practice, and that's it. Um, I think that we need to give them this purpose to pay attention to the language and to want to understand the language, to want to express meaning. Going back to this communicative need, the communicative need in the classroom is by me creating purpose for Mm -hmm. the things that we're doing. And if there is no purpose other than to practice, some of the very motivated students might engage with it. But yeah. the not motivated students are just going to sort of cruise, you know, what I mean, just, just right. to the bare minimum and not really engage with it. So as much as possible, I try to think of a way of what information is being conveyed, the content of all these rules or structures or anything like that. And then what are the learners going to be doing with it so that they demonstrate to me that they understood or that I'm giving them a purpose for one to express meaning.
2: Right. So basically talking in the language the whole time as opposed to talking about the language, which is what often happens when you're just talking about the present perfect or you're talking about the subjunctive. Because when I took Spanish lessons, that's what happened. My teacher was like, we're going to learn how to use this subjunctive. I'm like, I don't want to talk about the subjunctive. (laughs) I want to talk about, I want to talk about football in Spanish. That's what (laughs) I want.
0: That's the smart. Yeah.
2: I don't know how to communicate that, but I want to be, I want to try. And I want you to help me when I don't know what to say.
1: Yes. Yes. Except I'll say though, because the other thing that I think is also fundamental for teachers to understand is The difference between focus on form and focus on forms plural, Mm. Uh, because focus on form has been so misunderstood. And and we have a different
2: name in in ELTA Valencia. We have
1: have? well, we have like what we call a
2: presentation practice production, which is what we call Um, a focus on forms, and task based language teaching or or dogma ELT are more focused on form, where you are trying to communicate in the language and you are. Giving corrective feedback when necessary the people well, or, or yeah. even
1: yes i mean the, there's there's different ways of doing focus on form right it doesn't right. The, the classic example is corrective feedback or, yeah. yes um but I think the problem with it mm. that I see the, just the not understanding the fundamentals is just how much it has been misunderstood right because then if what you're going to do is to have the students write something and then you're going to correct every error. And then you say, see, I'm doing focus on form. I'm doing great. Well, no, correcting every error is not just going to magically make them go away. Mm -hmm. So I think that we still need to have these conversations to understand what did Michael Long actually say about focus on form before it got twisted and and changed sometimes into PPP, right? Where it's like, oh, but see, I'm focusing on form and then I'm giving them all these meaningful activities to do, right? So that's still focus on form. No, it's not, right? Because no. what you're gonna, what you're still doing is, as Michael Long said, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're exactly. still leading with grammar, and then yes. you're creating all of these contexts where they have to use the grammar. That is not focused well, on form. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's still difficult going back to this. We need to cover structures until we move away from. We need to cover structures to prioritizing, understanding, content, information. If yeah. <laughs> you want to talk about soccer or football, let's do it. Versus leading with the form where it's like, okay, let's, let's see. I want to teach them adjectives. So what can I do with adjectives? Let's do descriptions. Okay, but then you started off. You yeah. think that your goal was to teach them text. Yes. And so it's so hard. It's so Thank hard to change this. that. Oh. One of my graduate students said, we need a grammar detox. And I agree. We are so conditioned with language teachers. Let's lead with language. Let's see with language forms. Exactly. And until we sort of switch that and even are okay with the fact that maybe all we used was present tense the whole year. Well, if that's all you needed, that's all you needed. Why are you forcing other things that sometimes we're forcing structures uh, for the sake of covering structures? I'm not saying everybody should only use present tense, but what I'm saying is that many very useful structures in language are used over and over and over and over and over again. And that's okay. That's just the way that language is. Right. Um, Hmm. But textbooks especially have conditioned us to thinking that every unit or in different years you need to cover different structures we have been conditioned so much that it is so hard to imagine what it would be whether you know different years different courses are not organized by structures and that you don't have this pressure that in second year and third year you need to do past tense or yeah. you need to do phrasal verbs no, or you're not
2: ready to use that structure, even though you're trying <laughs> to use lot, that, structure, right? Yeah, which yeah, yeah. is like yeah, tried, one of the most you that
3: yet. <laughs> absurd
2: things I've ever right. said. Like, oh, no, please. no, no. No, this is I- Spanish three, Leo. You can't use yes. that
1: yet. That's right. Not have, yet. I, no, yeah. I think we have that in the book, or maybe I took it out. I, I may have oh. taken it
0: out because
1: I didn't want to offend anybody, but I think I, I maybe I kept it. I hope I kept it. I, I wrote Have you ever tried to have a conversation using only regular verbs? Do you know how hard that is? but the textbook is like well you're not ready for the regular verbs yet so let's only use regular right, it yeah. doesn't work that way that's it's, not how language it's works. the
2: straight jacket right
1: yes there we go <laughs> trying to control again we're trying to control language um so anyway so those are some of the fundamentals I also think that the, uh, the role of output is misunderstood and mm. I think that it was good to have a good um chapter about yeah. that I feel like um, which is, we are no strangers to pendulum swings in language teaching and in second language acquisition. So I'm not surprised that after so many textbooks following PPP, following focus on forms, um, even though they claim they were communicative, but clearly they were not, that we have this reaction to, mm. oh no, we got to go back to the basics. We got to go back to input, 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 only input, only input, only input. Only input. Almost to the point where output gets vilified or output yeah. is like this evil thing that you don't need. Now we went too far to the extreme where we're not understanding some of the fundamentals. Um, mm. So it, it, that was that was another thing to keep in mind. And then I think that um, we do have a chapter on interaction because I think interaction is a, first of all, is what a lot of language learners want to do, right? They want to have yeah. these conversations and interacting in the language, but also to understand, What a good scaffolded interactive task can look like. And again, with letting go of control, sometimes Mm -hmm. I see interpersonal tasks um, or interactive tasks where it's too much of the extreme. Either all they're given is a prompt and now go have a conversation about this. (laughs) And for some learners, including myself, after the first two questions, I don't know what else to say. And then I get really awkward. Um, Or to the extreme of, Use complete sentences, use 10 words from the vocab list, use these verbs. It is so hard to have yeah. an actual conversation where you're actually checking the list of things that you need to use. And so how can we find a middle ground where the students, again, communicate, they want right. to communicate, they want to understand their partner and they want to express meaning for a purpose without us controlling too much of what that interaction looks right. like, uh, and that's one of the things I love about TDLT, Right, where it's okay if the learners did not use complete sentence. It's okay if the learners just didn't remember the word, and so they sort of described it. And to me, that's language. That yeah. that's exactly right, and there's nothing wrong with it.
2: There's a quote by Dick Allwright, which is a terrible name, but anyway, I think the quote says, "If communication is the aim, then communication should be the means for us yeah. to learn a language." So. Um, so that's that's like that explains why if you're looking for common ground, then you should get common ground. Second language theory goes to the classroom. We have two last questions before we wrap okay. this up. The first one is from one of our uh, our followers on on Instagram, in Twitter, and all of I don't remember where the question came from, but I think it was a question from Neil, and he basically asked me, where do you stand on the interface enigma? <laughs>
1: Oh, my goodness, to Should those we clarify, well, first of all,
2: clarify, clarify. What the, clarify. Give her, maybe give her a time limit on this one. What yeah. is the unpack? Yeah. Let's unpack very quickly. Let's a simplified version of your simplified version of the um, interface, interface hypothesis. Yeah. yeah.
1: OK, so the interface camps, I would say there's three very again, simplification of the simplification. So you have one crashing king of this camp it would be, say, an implicit explicit knowledge completely different. There's no interface. There's no connection between the two. One does not lead to the other. Then you have the other extreme with the Kaiser, which is no Uh, explicit, can then turn into implicit. I know that's not what the Kaiser said. I'm simplifying, but if Bill Van Patten <laughs> hears this, he's going to tell me that's not what the Kaiser said, and I know that's not what the Kaiser <laughs> said, but let's simplify it, um, where um, you, the, the basic premise of that camp, the underlying premise of that camp is that learning a language is like learning anything else. Learning is learning, right? It's just cognition and so if uh by you know how to ride a bicycle somebody sort of shows you you practice 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 then you eventually are able to ride a bicycle without really thinking what you're doing that language can work the same way in a nutshell um and then there's the middle cam middle ground where is that's the weak interface position and that would be ellis and that would be you know maybe some of it sometimes it depends right um and what i find in terms of like if we were going to do like a diagram of all this i think there's much more support um for thinking that it's mostly implicit and that the the bulk of our knowledge is implicit in a language mm-hmm. and that explicit knowledge has may have a role relatively limited i think that. Bulk of SLA uh, scholars, not everybody, not everybody, but the bulk of them would probably agree that learning a language is not like learning everything else, that it doesn't work like how somebody shows you how to ride a bicycle, practice, 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 and now you are fluent, that it just doesn't work that way. Um, And so... I would probably say that I I know that it's probably going to sound like the easiest answer to give you, but I would probably say that I'm in the middle, that I'm in the weak interface. And the reason for that is the weak interface does recognize that explicit and implicit knowledge are two different types of knowledge. They do recognize that. So they give that to the crash and camp saying, yes, we agree with that. You're right. And that's why I see a lot of common ground there, but they're not ruling out the value of explicit knowledge. Um, And I think when it comes to instructed uh, language acquisition, when it comes to language courses and a lot of our assessments and our goals, I don't think we can completely discount the value of explicit knowledge because what I'm seeing in a lot of classes is we're still expecting learners to reread what they wrote and edit it. We're still Mm -hmm. expecting learners to monitor their production to some extent. And even the extreme camp sense that explicit knowledge can help you monitor your production. So I think that there's something there where some of this explicit knowledge can sometimes help you make sense of the language, sometimes how you process the language or what you notice in the language, which is why focus on form. Right. Part of it is a little bit explicit, right? That It recognizes that maybe drawing the learner's attention to form can have some value. The extreme camp of no interfaces there's no value because those end up being completely different knowledges that don't necessarily interact with each other. I just don't see it that way. I'm more along the lines of Ellis Michael Long, the weak interface position where some of this attention to form for second language acquisition can help you develop communicative ability And that eventually, it's all the bulk of it is just implicit knowledge. You're you're drawing from your implicit knowledge. But even as I'm, even if as I am talking, part of it, I think, is my explicit knowledge monitoring my production, noticing what I just said, realizing it's wrong, and correcting it. Right. So I think it's so hard to separate them. And Mm. it's the one thing that we still don't know is how do we get concrete, objective evidence of implicit knowledge. Mm. Where, how do you get that? Every yeah. single study, the participants are going knowing that you're studying something. <laughs> and it is just almost impossible to get into right. somebody's mind. I know that there's, you know, MRI research, eye tracking research, there's all of these in, still relatively indirect measures of implicit knowledge. I don't know that we'll ever be able to get 100% pure evidence of implicit knowledge where you can say, the the participant was not drawing on their like you can be sure that they were not right. drawing on their yeah, explicit yeah, yeah. knowledge how do you do that how do you do that so
0: Amazing.
1: that's why maybe it's the easy answer but i would say no I'm
0: it's weak. it's a
2: balanced response you kind of found <laughs> your you found a, you found your common ground there that's your
3: mid- that's the common ground, <laughs> the common ground yes. is the middle ground yes.
1: and yes. that's i mean but it's still the one thing that i think a lot of People would even the Kaiser would probably agree with is that learning rules plus mechanical practice does not lead to acquisition. I think everybody on SLA agrees with right. that by now. That's,
2: that's a very good message to wrap this up with. So, to those of you who are listening to this podcast, you can definitely f- follow Florencia on Twitter, LinkedIn. Um, she's also um on YouTube with the her YouTube unpacking, unpacking language pedagogy. And don't forget to buy a copy of her book, her recent book, Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition um, Theory Goes Into the Classroom. And before we wrap it up, I always have one final rapid-fire question. And this is a very general question. It's not about language, but it's a hypothetical question. So I'm going to ask you to use the second conditional now. So I'm trying to control (laughs) the learning here. We'll be monitoring to make sure she's using it. That's right. So my question is very simple, Florencia. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere, anywhere in the world with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, of course, getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why?
1: Oh, my God. This question is just too hard. Um, and this is not about language or language teaching? It could be
2: anything. It could be anything. It could be about a thing. It could be about teaching. It could be about learning. It could be about language. Anything.
1: Could be about dogs. Could be about dogs. Um, yeah, I think um, I think my 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 first instinct. Okay, so if it's about language, I have an idea. But if it doesn't, it's about language teaching. I have an idea. But if it's not about um, language teaching, if it could be about anything, my my first instinct was be kind to animals, just because that's the way that I am. And I think that I, I'm an animal lover and I, I respect animals as much as I respect people that I, I don't think humans are not better than animals. Right. <laughs> Maybe that would be the message that I would. Put.
2: What about the language teaching one? Yeah, now now I'm, I'm curious, curious. Yeah, I'm yeah, curious yeah. about the language
1: teaching. Okay. So I have two. So you got Can two I messages. Two billboards? Yeah.
0: Okay. two billboards. Yes.
1: So the, the one that I would put is prioritize understanding content over understanding rules. That's what I would probably say, and then the other one, Crashin is not gonna like it, but I'm gonna say it anyway is <sighs> saying that <laughs> saying that input is necessary does not mean that output is unnecessary.
2: That's what I would. Say. Okay, I think this is a very good way for us to wrap this up, Florencia. Thank you very much for your um for being here this was a fascinating conversation i still oh, have more questions to ask but we ran out of time maybe we'll invite you back all maybe right like a second edition of your book
3: that's right second edition or
2: the part two <laughs> to the first edition of the book i guess <laughs> yes
1: all thank right you. well thank you so so much this was a blast i i loved this conversation thank you
0: You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.